Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 226 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Roberta Winter, an analyst and technical writer at healthpolicymaven.com and the president of Prevalier Incorporated. She's a former mission control consultant with Seton Network Finance Office. Roberta, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great in a rainy day in the Seattle area. Well, I'm glad that uh, you're able to join us today on, on the podcast. So the first question I'd like to ask you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Uh, the, the main thing that I've been doing to advance the public interest is working towards uh, health care reform uh, really since uh, I got out of the insurance business. Um, and that's why I went to graduate school, and um, that's what I've been doing ever since. Um, so it's been a, you know kind of like climbing the snowfield of Mount Rainier over and over again. But, you know, there's progress being made. Sure. So, so you've been working on healthcare reform. It sounds like for decades. Definitely. Uh, so many of our listeners, when they hear the phrase healthcare reform, may think of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. But what you're mm-hmm. talking about is working on healthcare reform, perhaps decades before President Obama ever came into office. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So, what does healthcare reform mean, and what have you been working on, and what have you been trying to accomplish? Well. Um, I became very frustrated with um, the insurance industry not really improving health, making more money all the time, and um, that was the start of it. And then, so I wrote an essay and I got accepted. You know, I went across country and interviewed at graduate school and got accepted and went to one. My capstone was increasing the engagement of the public in understanding health health systems, because at that time, people really didn't have any idea how healthcare worked in the U.S., and now people have a better idea, largely thanks to uh, the change in communications, uh, the advent of smartphone and cloud technology, um, more information is being shared, especially about quality, because at that time, it was right after the IOM report came out um, on quality in the U.S. was terrible. So, Let me interrupt you for a second. For our mm-hmm. listeners, IOM stands for Institute of Medicine. She's referring to the 1999 report to Air as human. Please continue, Roberta. Yes. And, and so at that time, uh, I mean, the infection rates and things like that were, and, and uh, things being left in people in surgery and all of that was just terrible. So uh, there were a number of initiatives that came out of that. Uh, both uh, public and private, uh, almost all, well, all nonprofit, let's put it that way. I can't think of one for-profit initiative that came out of that, but um, that worked on the quality issue. So that was exciting, um, and that information it, that is available to people who know how to find it, and I wrote about that in my book that came out in uh, 2013, which was How to Discern Quality. That book was a lot about uh, quality and trying to get information to the consumers to understand how how to discern, for example, if you have to have a surgical procedure, how do you vet the hospital? And 
before, uh, you know, let's say before the advent of smartphones, very few people were even um, thinking about that question. Uh, but now, um, more people are, and this is really important. And, and your, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid actually allow you to go to their uh, site and to be able to make a quality assessment. It's not quite as good as it was when my book came out because they simplified it to a star rating uh, as opposed to a – they used to have a population measure that showed their error rate, which I loved as a, you know, a geek, but they at least have a star rating. So you can look and see which facility you're considering and how – good they are at a specific procedure and how they're ranked uh, for their quality, and that's very important information. So, Roberta, um, you mentioned that you were working in the health insurance business and uh, that you saw the business was actually motivated, uh, it seems, as you said, too, too much by profit and uh, not, were not motivated uh, enough by improving population health or just improving wellness uh, among Americans. So could you provide us with some anecdotes, um, some stories about what it was that really opened your eyes uh, in the insurance industry, any practices that you thought ought to be changed, and what kind of reform that you thought was needed based on your experience in the insurance industry? Well, <laughs> there are so many. I mean, I was in the insurance industry long enough. I remember the, the days of the horrible discriminatory practices. I mean, they used to – I. I would always find ways to get my clients coverage, but I can remember where they would, you know, have these horrible questions if it was two men or two women living together. I mean, this kind of thing. It was just horrible. Uh, or they, with, for small businesses, and this probably still goes on today, um, they would have all these levels of um, basically cushion for them to assure their profitability, and this is even from the former Blue Cross Blue Shield. So they would charge their client like 50% of their whatever they would contribute would go into not paying for benefits for them. And I actually wrote about this in my book. There's a chapter on isn't, it in my book in Insurance 101. Isn't that illegal according by breaking a medical loss ratio, minimum of 80% thresh, threshold? That's only for certain government plans, and it's, that's an excellent point you're bringing up because that is one of the great things that happened uh, with the Accountable Care Act. Unfortunately, it doesn't affect the private sector. Uh, they can pretty much charge whatever they, the market will bear, and that's what they uh, continue to do. Though, of course, one must realize that all, actually 100% of health insurance companies, including all private for-profit health insurance companies, are regulated by one state or another. Isn't that correct? Well, yes, and that's because of the McCarran-Ferguson Act. But the, but the regulation it implies more uh, than, than what you're really getting. Uh, they, they have rate-setting authority, and some states, like Washington State, are, are pretty rigorous about that, although they're still ultimately, um, you know, overwhelmed by, you know, the big insurance companies getting what they want. Um, they also... Uh, monitor for uh, companies not being uh, charlatans and actually being able to pay the claims um, and have a necessary financial reserves. However, in uh, some states, we won't say which one they are, but the color's not blue, um, they uh, have uh, less stringent standards 
um, than uh, some of the other uh, states. Well, so two things sure. right there. Just uh, for our listeners who aren't politically inclined, if the color is not blue, then it's red, which means a Republican state is what you're well, alluding to. Well, no, I mean, it's some of the southern states have, ha- have had a bad reputation for not um, having adequate uh, solvency standards and things for uh, their insurance industry. Now, Roberta, there is a phenomenon in the 1980s and 1990s referred to as the managed care backlash. And during that time period, there was an emphasis on controlling costs, which had escalated sharply. In fact, in the early 1970s, President Richard Nixon had said that health care costs, which at that point were approximately 9% of gross domestic product, were completely out of control and one day surely would reach 12%. Of course, as we know, uh, currently estimates for health care costs as a proportion of GDP range towards 185 to 19% of all gross domestic products. So clearly we've um, more than doubled and and nearly tripled uh, our health care expenditures since the time when a Republican president said it was out of control. There were attempts with health maintenance organizations in the 80s and 90s to um, uh, to cut down costs, and they were very successful at cutting costs. But of course, they cut costs at the expense of health care and quality of care. Can you explain to our listeners why we're not experiencing experiencing the managed care backlash now? What's different different between bundled uh, payments and capitated payments that we see under the Affordable Care Act in the 21st century? with uh, those HMOs and MCOs that were working in the 1990s and 80s uh, against which the public rebelled? Okay, Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, Number one, um, some of those um, HMOs, and this a lot had to do with the Medicare uh, set because uh, company Humana is one that comes to mind. Uh, there was government incentive, and some of the government incentives are, you know, they're well meant, but they have adverse consequences. So they provided uh, an incentive for companies just to get in here and enroll all these seniors, and which they did, but then uh, as soon as the loss ratios came in, because that's what insurance companies call all their clients, and when they pay claims on them, they don't say, oh, services, they say loss ratios. Uh, they, then they would just get out of that market sector, and the government, of course, allowed them to do this because that, they didn't think that through very well. That's different now, um, and it's a very different time nationally because of the quality information. And here I'm going to link that to the work that's gone on since 2000. Um, but Kaiser uh, is a, a national uh, HMO. And they uh, have uh, some of the best quality outcomes, which you can uh, assess in a variety of ways for free uh, on your smartphone or the Internet. Um, LeapFrog is a group that uh, was started by a consortium of uh, private employers because they were so frustrated with uh, poor quality uh, from uh, health care. And so they rank hospitals throughout the country. And when they first started doing this, um, when I was in grad school, it was a fledgling effort. And then when I was doing research for my uh, book in 2010, there was just maybe a couple of thousand hospitals in there. And by the time I had published my uh, book in, uh, in 2013, we had, I think, 7,500 hospitals were willing to be in their survey. So it was excellent um, 
quality, and of course there's the, the uh, Medicare side as well. Uh, but the point is, people can see that these HMOs and um, managed care organizations and integrated care organizations have better clinical outcomes. Kaiser, in every one of their hospitals, is always in the top rank uh, for patient safety. So this is this information is out there now, and it's been published and available for quite a while. So the public has started changing their minds uh, on what works in healthcare. And I'll give you some other examples. Um, the Mayo Clinic is an integrated healthcare system. One of the best healthcare systems in the world is the Mayo Clinic. I always say the Mayo Clinic is not representative of healthcare in the U.S. because it really isn't. It's better by a long shot. And for um, our listeners who don't know, the Mayo Clinic is in Minnesota. And also they have um, uh, Arizona, and I think they might have a Florida one. I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, but they have a few centers. Uh, and they're integrated healthcare practice. And Virginia Mason is a, a practice that's in the Seattle area, and they have uh, really high clinical outcomes. And it has to do with practice management and integrated care. And so this idea that you can go to any doctor affiliated anywhere with any hospital and have the same quality measure that you have in these integrated, integrated care practices have not been shown to be true, and people know this now. So do you, are you saying that the big difference between the present day and the managed care backlash of the 80s and 90s is that today consumers are holding providers and payers accountable for their health care quality metrics? Um, I think that, yes, there's the start of that, because more people care about it, more people are asking questions, you have people that are when they're going to have procedures, they bring somebody with to help guide them through. There's a, there's been a huge patient advocacy effort, and I've been involved in that, and you know, sat on state commissions and things like that. Uh, so yes, there is that awareness, uh, and uh, patients um, are uh, more likely to ask questions and uh, are more likely to um, be informed and make a decision on where they're going to go. And hopefully this will also carry over into, uh, you know, their their uh, civil involvement. Uh, so and, would, you, would you say that many of the abuses that you saw earlier in your career when you were in the uh, insurance business uh, have been remedied? Oh, wow. Uh, for, for the insurance business? No, it, that that's pretty much the same. And um, basically, the insurance industry is a, is a, a financial tool that charges you about 20%, um, except for those few government plans where they can only charge maybe 15%, uh, you know, to administer services. But it's not really improving your health. And, um, I mean, I can give you some other examples of, of things. Uh, in, before I sold my business in 2000, the insurance brokerage, I had been um, working with uh, websites to improve um, client services in, since 1996. And one of them was uh, to allow my clients and their employees to access their benefit information online. And we figured out an inexpensive way to do this, uh, which essentially was, you know, hosting uh, a searchable PDF online for plan information, things like that, and having electronic enrollment. And here I was as a small little business, figured how to do this uh, with, you know, someone that I had hired. And um, 
So I went to the insurance companies, and they said, oh, well, we're not willing to do that because it's just cheaper for us to pay $7 an hour working in the back room. And and now you're thinking, okay, that's a long time ago. It's better now. Well, only somewhat because in a recent uh, engagement I've had with a, with a client, which I'm providing some uh, financial services, um, their current situation with their vendors isn't that much different. Uh, they had to uh, provide, they had to buy a, an outside service to have any type of electronic information. And their broker, who's doing the job that I used to do, just provided them paper information at enrollment time. So it hasn't improved. People are still doing the same old thing uh, and still making a lot more money. And that's the insurance business. So what needs to happen? What are you looking to – what change are you looking to see uh, in this country in the healthcare arena? Uh, well, there's many things we need to change, but I'll give you a list. And, and we've spent a lot of time talking about the insurance industry, which is really only a small part of the healthcare system. Say 20% of it might be insurance. Maybe not even that much because you have – uh, you have the hospitals, you have medical device companies, you have uh, the uh, clinics, and, uh, of course, big pharma. Uh, so what we need to do is um, get rid of Citizens United because uh, the big corporations and the medical system have overwhelmed uh, our elected officials and influenced all decisions uh, at the federal level. Let me just interrupt you there and define Citizens United, which was the United States Supreme Court case that allowed basically effectively uh, unlimited campaign contributions to uh, political action committees. And uh, it's interesting, Roberta, that you would bring up a case uh, pertaining to political contribution limits when we're talking about health care. You say there's a correlation? Yes, and I can give you a very specific example. Um, one of the, uh, the first of all, the Affordable Care Act, Patient uh, Affordable Care Act, uh, was consisted of the uh, Senate and Congress, two different acts. The Senate provided the funding, uh, the Health Care Reconciliation Act, and then the Affordable Care Act had all the provisions for, uh, you know, standards of uh, and uh, trying to cover most people in the U.S. for some type of health care. Uh, one of the ways that that was funded was taxes uh, through pe- people that were participating in the healthcare care system. And that included uh, the medical device industry. And there was a 3% tax for the medical device industry. And, and if people don't know what that means, it means, uh, you know, cardiac uh, devices, uh, orthopedic devices, that kind of thing. And this year, uh, Senator Cantwell from Washington State and uh, the other senator, I can't remember his name right now, from Minnesota, uh, who's a Democrat, both voted to remove that 3% tax uh, that funded uh, the tax credits and some of the other provisions of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, They they voted that uh, down. They removed it. And that doesn't help anything with consumers, but was directly related to uh, medical lobbyists uh, 
plying their trade for those two Democratic uh, senators. Of course, the Republicans were going to vote that down, but uh, you would have thought possibly uh, some of the Democrats wouldn't, and especially in the case of Tentwell, because Washington State doesn't have, you know, medical device companies there as much as in Minnesota, the two biggest companies uh, in the world that provide cardiac devices are right there, so you can kind of understand that. But anyway, that's the kind of thing that goes on. There was a a 3% tax placed on medical devices, and Republicans opposed removing the tax and actually were in favor of the tax? No, no. they Of course they were going to remove it, but you would have thought maybe some of the Democrats wouldn't because this is one of the underpinnings for the Affordable Care Act. But I just gave examples of two Democrats who were uh, influenced by... uh, medical lobbyists, medical sector lobbyists who said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll go along with you and take that 3% away from funding uh, the Affordable Care Act. So, Roberta, as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you to reflect on why it is you've been so interested in working to advance the public interest through health policy uh, and what you hope the lasting effects will be of your work. Uh, well, I guess at first I'd have to say I must be a masochist, but because when you, when you go to graduate school, there's, there's like, you know, one or two people that would be interested in health policy. But I think for me, my interest has been the combination of the, the large view uh, is necessary uh, to turn, um, you know, the fleet, if you will, of of things going on in healthcare, and it's the combination of the qualitative and the quantitative that is appealing uh, to me, and we've talked a little bit about the qualitative things. Uh, quantitatively, we're still spending 50% more than any other industrialized country, with the exception of three where we're only spending 40% more, but their healthcare is way better, uh, and why are we tolerating that as a, a nation? Why are we spending uh, 30000 for things that people spend six for in Europe? And there's just no sense about that. I published an article about this recently. So I think the next step to, you know, blowing up the, the conversation and getting people engaged at the next level to really uh, make changes is to start really dealing with the overcharging that's going on in U.S. healthcare. And it's going on because we're allowing it to happen. And that has been uh, Roberta Winter, an analyst and technical writer for healthpolicymaven.com, the president of Prevalier Incorporated, and a former mission control consultant at Seton Network Finance Office, as well as the author of How to Discern Quality Healthcare, a book about the quality of healthcare. And Roberta speaks... um, about how consumers are increasingly empowered with high-quality information to discern the, what the quality is of the health care that a provider or a hospital or some other healthcare setting is set to provide. Uh, she speaks about a transition over the past uh, two decades away from low-quality care to high-quality care. Of course, high-value care having two components, high-quality and low-cost, She says, we haven't quite yet gotten to a place where we have high-value care since we are spending nearly twice as much as the next most developed nation or next most expensive nation in the world. Um, 
um, and she uh, speaks about advancing the public interest, um, both by her work and uh, in, in working to uh, navigate around and, and eventually witness the dismantling of discriminatory practices in the health insurance business, um, but also in her work uh, seeking to uh, improve quality of care uh, and engage in patient advocacy and, and move America closer to uh, integrated care across the board. So, Roberta, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.